Elevated Entertainment with me, the one and only Desiree Valto in the whole wide world. Today's podcast is Chasing DNA and Family Roots, Part 2. But before I jump into this episode, I want to recap Part 1 with Dina Chasen, a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists and the Delaware African American Historical and Genealogical Society. That's a mouthful. She gave up lots of info on taking DNA tests to find one's family roots, as well as other detailed information on tracking one's family history. So go back and check out that episode. We even discussed my DNA results, which were very interesting, and my Creole culture based in Louisiana. Now to part two featuring Renee Warland, a family historian and archivist. In more than 20 years of research, this small business entrepreneur living with her husband in the Los Angeles area traced her family history in the United States and Canada. Renee's ancestors go back to the Jefferson Davis plantations in Mississippi, the Civil War, the Native American territory of Oklahoma, the sharecroppers' roadside demonstration in Missouri, to the fight for social justice in Oregon and entrepreneurship in the West. Additionally, the Indiana University alum unearthed numerous family tree treasures, including photos and stories about her ancestors in the archives of the Library of Congress, historical newspapers, documentaries, and local historical societies. What's interesting about Renee's journey is that she set out to find her roots mainly in North America and not Africa, like many African Americans. You'll find out why soon. But first, like all great stories, let's start from the beginning. What made you want to find out where you are from and where your people are from? Well, interesting enough, my family is not a large family. And we know very little about our parents, parents or, so I think it started with that. My mother only found out who her father was by name in her forties. And so that really kickstarted my journey into wanting, in wanting to know more and to provide my mother with some information. And I think the other thing as a child there was one picture of my grandmother's mother that was on her table in her living room. And we didn't hear a lot of stories about her. The one thing that we did hear is that she was Indian, as so many African-Americans hear that that's a part of their lineage. So I think Native American. Yes, Native American. I think that kind of kick-started it. And also, I was just interested in the stories the journey of my people. I think more so as they were in America versus somewhere else. So I think that, that's it. If I have to say one thing is to find my mother's father. And so that kickstarted it. So I think it's interesting. You said you wanted to find your family that was in America. So unlike a lot of folks who want to go outside of out of America, out of the United States to find their people. Did you find yourself wanting to know where you guys were from outside of of the United States once you started looking? I guess I didn't feel like I really needed a DNA test to confirm that 
I had West African heritage. So from that perspective, not so much, not so much. I felt that that would be a long shot anyway, having mostly African ancestry. I didn't see that as a possibility of linking with ancestors outside of the country. I was really more interested in what shaped them post-slavery reconstruction through the civil rights movement. I was more interested in those stories. I guess I really didn't see it as a possibility of going outside of that. Because when I started back in the 90s, some of the tools that we have today didn't exist when I started. So how did you start the journey? What, What did you specifically do? Well, you know, I try to interview as many people in my family that I could. You know, I would ask for letters. I would go to the uh, National Archives in D.C. There's one here in California. I would go there. I would even call local historical societies in places where I knew my family had lived. And I did have a lot of success in doing that. A lot of people stayed in place. And people were able to put me in contact with people who actually knew my family back in the 30s and the 40s. I even came across a woman in the Mississippi Delta who knew my great-great-grandmother. She, this woman was in her 90s, and she shared a story with me that when the Delta would flood, they would take a boat and they would dock it at my grandmother's place. And they would get off and then go back to school. And it was interesting because she was able to give me a description of what she looked like and, and to tell me something about her personality. That was something I had not heard. And to take it to another step, she was even able to give me a phone number of a cousin that lived in Chicago. She was like, baby, hold on. She said, I think I have your cousin's phone number. This lady's in her 90s, and she pulled out her book, and sure enough, she was able to connect me with a cousin in Chicago. And I call up that cousin, and I give her some of the family, you know, the name of our our surname, and ask her if she knew anything about our family. And she said no, but she said, my brother is the family historian, and his middle name is the name, one of the surnames that you gave me. And he lived in Canada. So she put me in touch with him. And sure enough, he had the same names in his Bible that I had in mine. So that was like finding a needle in a haystack, right? So then you said when the Mississippi Delta would flood, family would get in a boat. And where exactly did they go once it flooded? It wasn't my family. It was the kids in the community. They would get on this boat to go to school. And the boat was oh, docked yes. at Oh, house. so they were, oh, okay. They were still in the same area. Okay, I see. I see what you're saying now. Yes. It was in around the, let me see, Cleveland, Mississippi area. Okay. And so in the areas that you were looking to find your family, where did you, where did you go to find them? Physically, my mother was born in Denver. And her, she was raised by her great-grandparents, well, her great-grandfather, because her, her grandmother died at an early age. And so her grandfather raised my mother and my mother's 
course, aunts and uncles. So she grew up with them because she was of the same generation. And they moved around for work. You know, he was in the Seattle area. He was in Portland, Kansas, Denver. And it wasn't until my mother's mother married and moved to Indiana. So her roots, my parents' roots aren't there. So my journey took me more to the West Coast. How many states would you say you were looking at? Uh, Let me see. The state of Washington, Oregon, Kansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Denver, Colorado. And interesting enough, I was at one of the archives looking for my family And I couldn't find them in in that particular year of the census. And one of the genealogists approached me and asked if I needed some help. And I said, sure, you know, I'm trying to find my family in 1900. I, I can't find them in any of the census that I would expect them to be. And he asked me, he said, well, do you have any Native American ancestry? And I was like, huh, I said, funny that you asked. I said, the family lore is that my great-grandmother was supposed to be Native American. He said, okay. He said, then you should check the Indian census of 1900. And I was like, sure, okay. And so sure enough, I find my family Indian census in 1900. Where is that? It's called the Indian census. And I guess mostly um, Oklahoma. That was pretty fascinating because... I really didn't expect that, although that was like most African-Americans understand or believe that they have Native American ancestry. Yeah, because Henry Louis Gates Jr., his famous quote a few years back, you know, every Black person I meet says they have a Native American relative when the percentage is actually really, really low. So it's interesting that you were able to find Native American ancestry. Now, you said that a genealogist, so how did you come upon a genealogist to help you? Well, actually, I was at the Family History Library, and they have volunteers of genealogists and people who are trained to assist people. So really, how he helped me was just the suggestion of looking there because it wasn't something that was on my radar. Although I had heard it, it was kind of parked somewhere in the back of my mind. So by his insisting, I said, hey, what do I have to lose? I checked it out. And so my family, they were a mix of Creek Indian and Cherokee. So that was pretty fascinating to find. Oh, well, Cherokee Indian is interesting because story came out that Cherokee were reconciling uh, their differences with African-Americans in terms of slavery. What did you think of that whole, that story? Well, I think it's about time. It was another form of discrimination, keeping Blacks out. And part of that reason was for oil rights, to keep Blacks from being able to claim some of those rights. So they kept them out. So I think it's, it's about time. And I think if it brings closure to African-Americans who grew up with vivid stories of their Native American history, I think it's a good thing. I wasn't that tied to the stories. It was just something that, you know, my grandmother talked about occasionally. And the picture 
my great grandmother did look like she was Indian and my the image she definitely looked what we would think of as a Native American, but I wasn't really tied so much to that story. It's nice to hear that other people who are will have some closure. So what other interesting tidbits about your family did you find out that that may have been a surprise or anything like that? Yeah, I am more interested in their journey and versus being able to fill out a family tree or a pedigree chart. I am more interested mm-hmm. in what their journey was. And I was able to find some very interesting news articles. They're in their local newspapers, stories. Like I actually knew my great grandfather and he was just very gracious man and a churchgoer. So to read some of the stories of his grit in the newspaper where he was challenging local authority against racism. There was a story where his daughter had been poisoned by a neighbor, by a white neighbor. They had given her some bread with poison on it. And they ended up taking, this was in Portland, Oregon. And my great-grandfather took these people to court. And when they were in court, they, these people stood up and called my great-grandfather the N-word. Wow. And the judge ended up supporting him and said, you know what, this is not going to happen in my courtroom. And so I just, this man who, like I said, he was gracious, and I wouldn't have thought he would have had the courage to do that, to take a white family to court. And that was in the early probably in the early teens. So oh, like that the was 19, the early 1900s. Yeah. Yes. And this is Oregon. Yeah. A lot of people, um, although I think we hear a lot about Oregon now, but a lot of people forget that at some point in history, there was an influx of black people into the West coast who many of them went to California, but many of them spread out and went to Washington, Oregon, but we don't hear so much of, about those migrations of uh, exactly. black people moving, and moving west. There was a large contingent of black people who went there because they had black newspapers, which you can find archived today. They had black businesses. They had black organizations that would print some of the stories, some of the hardships that black people were facing at that time. And they would list what their employment was, what were some of the problems that they were facing. So that information does exist. If you go and look in your local areas, there's so much personal information that you would be surprised to find. Information like I found, like my great-grandfather's wedding. It described his wedding in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I think must have been exciting. Absolutely. Like I said, because we really don't know much about our family. And my great-grandfather, when he left the South, Mississippi, I don't think he ever saw his family again. And this is evident through the letters that he did write to his family. They never saw each other again. So to have a little bit of his life you know, memorialized through letters and newspaper articles, I can kind of piece together the kind of person, the grit, the perseverance that it took to raise. He had a very large family. 
I think there were like 10 kids and his wife died at, I think she was like 35 of TB. And so, yeah, he was left to raise this pretty large family by himself. to kind of the non-traditional way of tracing my roots. There was another archive that I reached out to in Charleston, Missouri. Actually, it was a historical society. And I reached out to them and I said I was researching my family and I gave them the surname. And he was like, oh, yeah, the guy, it was a white man on the other side. He goes, I knew your family. And he started calling them out by their nickname. And so when he did that, I knew he knew who I was talking about. And he said, there's a Negro woman. Now, this was in the 90s. He said, there's a Negro woman (laughs) who lives here, who still lives here, who knew your family very well. And he Hmm. said, I'm going to give you her number. And so I called that lady up. And now this is my second person that I'm speaking to who's in her 90s, two different locations, who knew my family. And she said, she told me that she registered my grandfather to vote. She told me he had a social security number, which at that time I was not able to find. And she also said that he was going by a name that was his grandmother's last name. And she said his real name and she gave me his name. And I knew that information. So I knew the other information she had given me was probably correct. And after she shared with me that she had registered him to vote and he had a social security number, I went on a search and I was able to find that information. So, so you were just the, researching all over the place. Exactly. And then I was watching... My family, and this is something that's kind of, I found really fascinating and interesting because no one ever shares these stories, but my father's father left, actually he moved around Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama. He ends up in Southeast Missouri in the Charleston, Missouri area. So he's there in the thirties and the twenties. And in 1938, the sharecroppers, he was a sharecropper, the sharecroppers in that area decided, you know what, we're tired of picking cotton all day and getting cheated (laughs) at the end of the week by the white man. And they all decided to go on strike. And I know this story because it's documented in this documentary that I just happened to watch on that location. And this is in Missouri? Yes, in southeast Missouri, which it's on the border of Mississippi and Illinois. And near the Charleston, if you want to look for a bigger city, you would look for uh, Charleston or Cairo, Illinois. And so somebody did a documentary, and I'm watching this, and I'm looking at the, there were a lot of 
images, photographs and video. And I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, these people look familiar. And so mm-hmm. I send the, the, what do you call it, DVD to my sister out of state and she watched it. And she was like, oh, yeah, she pointed out my grandmother, my uncle, my grandfather, all of these people in the video. And it's fascinating to watch because it was in the dead of winter that these sharecroppers said no more. They took all of their belongings and lined the highway. They slept there. They protested there. And it was such a scene that the federal government sent out filmmakers and photographers to document it. Mm. And so that's why we have all these images today. And I was able to go on to the Library of Congress website and go by location, Southeast Missouri. I was able to go there and find those images and order. I was able to order these beautiful images of my family. And a lot of the the images are from well-known photographers back from the Depression era, the people who were sent out to photograph them. So, yeah, I never expected that. And my dad was still living at the time. And I asked him if he had any memory of it because he was about nine or ten. And he didn't remember a thing from it. I don't know if it's they just suppressed it because it was a pretty traumatic experience, I would think, especially for a kid, you know, to have all your belongings lined up on the highway. And that's where you're sleeping. That's where you're eating. But and after that, of course, some changes were made for the sharecroppers. Also, I was at the Library of Congress one day in D.C. and. I was pulling the pictures, right, because all of these pictures are actually there, and they're in these cabinets. I took out the pictures, and when I was returning them, I set them on the desk for the person that attended to take them. And so this woman is standing there, and she goes, huh. She said, these look really familiar. And she said, you know what? My husband... This is some white lady who's at the Library of Congress just standing there. She said, my Mm. husband did his Ph.D. on the photographs from that period. (laughs) And she said, she said, you know what? The book is here at the Library of Congress. So she goes and she pulls the book for me. And there are images of my family in the book. And I just thought, like, who could even make this up? So those are a couple of stories where it makes me excited and it gives me hope that although slavery and the repercussions of slavery, you know, have made it difficult for African-Americans to find their family, there's still hope out there. At what point in your journey did you decide you wanted to do DNA tests? Let me see. I started in the 90s, and I think the first DNA test I purchased was in the 2000s. And it was more trying to collect whatever I could from some of my older relatives, you know, before they passed away. And I just wanted to have it. And I didn't know really what it would really show. And Mm -hmm. it is sort of, although DNA science is not new, but in terms of connecting people with their ancestral home, 
is new. So that part of it's new. My real purpose of it was, is to see if I could connect with any of a sibling or a close relative or trying to connect with my great-grandfather's family. So that was the real purpose for me to do the DNA test. And so that would help to supplement what you were able to find through the various historical societies and the Library of Congress and so on. Exactly, in what oral history I had. But to say that it has been interesting, although I, I really can't say other than having wanting to connect with um, long-lost long family members, it has been quite interesting. And I think what I wasn't expecting, well, I guess what it did was amplify how interconnected we are as people. And so I guess it was a bit of a surprise to see how many non-African, how many relatives I had that weren't from the African diaspora. That, hmm. that was a bit surprising to me. I was not... Well, the United States is a melting pot. Exactly. And I I just wasn't expecting that. But also, I think, too, it amplified, you know, like I said, my family is not that big. My mother's an only child. My father, although he had a number of siblings, we didn't know any of his first cousins. Basically, the only people we know is my dad and his siblings. So it was just a bit surprising that how many relatives we have. I just, that was just, I guess I, it just amplified it. And I guess the next thing that I would have, I'm surprised by is I wasn't looking for this at all, but just the number of historical people that are on some of the trees of the people that I'm related to. And I'm not Hmm. saying that I'm related to those people. But there's, there are trees out there from people that I match who have, somebody has Rosa Parks on their tree. Somebody has Nat King Cole. Yeah, so that, that was a little bit surprising. Now, earlier you, how, you were saying yeah. how you wanted to get the samples, the DNA samples from your family. So how were you able to convince them to take the DNA test? Um, <laughs> my family is not interested so the older, my mom, my dad, yeah. they are, they're just like, I, no, I'm not doing that. And, and that's yeah, what I find, know. too. I had a cousin. I had a cousin take it. And one of the people that I didn't know before doing the DNA test, he's a third cousin. He and I met in Chicago, and we hit it off. And he took me to visit his aunt who he did not know very well himself, but he took me to visit her. And the first time we met, I asked her if she would do me the favor of taking the DNA test. And she said, no way in hell would she take a DNA test. She actually mentioned the situation with, you might have to help me out here, what's her name? The woman who they used her DNA to, oh, Henrietta Black. Yes, and she brought up the syphilis situation, the Tuskegee Institute syphilis mm-hmm. experiment. So she said, no way. So she was not interested in doing the DNA test. So a few years after that, I went back to visit her. And we had such a good time. 
She shared stories about her family. I showed her pictures. And she said, honey, she said, I, I really wish I knew how we were related. And I said, you know, I wish, I wish we knew too. And I said, I reminded her, I said, if you were willing to do the DNA test, we could find out how we're related. And she said, okay, sure. And I had two kids on me, one from Ancestry and one from 23andMe. And she did it. And turns out, like, she's a high, she's a high match. But we're wow. still not able to determine exactly how we're related. But interesting enough, she does have the surname. Her maiden name is the name that my mother was given for her father, if that makes sense. And so then when you do the DNA test, uh, they give you the option to connect with other family members. And, and so have you connected with other family members through, through the DNA matches and searches? I connected with the guy in Chicago that mm-hmm. I just mentioned that he introduced me to a close match. There are a few other people that I communicated with just a little bit. Most people I find are really not interested in a close connecting. contact. Yes, yeah. they're not really interested in connecting. They took the test basically to find out what their DNA breakdown was, where they yeah. hail from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in that respect, I have, I have not had a lot of success. But at the same time, I've only reached out to a few people. Yeah. So what advice would you give to people who are interested in finding, finding out more about their roots? I have to tell you, listening to your story, it sounds like when you started on this journey, you're not the typical person. I mean, you knew where to go. You knew about the historical societies and that sort of thing. But what would you tell the regular person who's like, you know, I really want to know more about my family. What, what would you tell them to do? I would say, as I learned from doing workshops and webinars, and the advice is always start with your family. You interview your family and you go from there. If you have a great grandparent or you have a grandmother that's the best place to start. You ask them questions. Where did you live? Where did you get married? What other names are in the family? Because so you want to find out, you ask questions, you know, where do you live? Where did you live? What county did you live in? Where did you get married? Did you have sisters and brothers? So yeah, I say you start with interviewing your family. You ask if there's letters that you might be able to look at because often There's a lot of information in letters, like when somebody died or somebody got married, somebody had a baby. And also, you'll get dates and you'll get addresses. Then I say, go join a local genealogy society. They do workshops. They tell you how to get started. They give you forms. And also, there's a family history library that's run by the Mormons. They're in every Mm -hmm. single town, no matter how small, and they're a good source of information. And also, go to Ancestry.com. When I started my family history journey, I didn't have the internet or Ancestry.com at my fingertips. I would go to the local library 
and most cities have one and they have a genealogy department. And that's another place. But I really stress that looking at the local histories. So if you're doing research in Memphis, Tennessee, contact that local library and ask them what tools or resources do they have in researching local families. Sometimes they might have a yearbook or they might have a record of everybody who died in that area. Yes, definitely check out your local depository. What a rich and wonderful journey for Renee Worland and her family. No matter who we are and where we are from, or think we are from, we all have a story to tell. Thanks again for listening, and a big thanks again to Renee Worland. For more information on this episode of Chasing DNA and Family Roots Part 2, please go to undergroundmagnolia.com. Again, undergroundmagnolia.com. Just click on the show and all info will be there. While on my website, you will also find Chasing DNA and Family Roots Part 1 with genealogist Dina Chasen, as well as all of my other podcast episodes. Email me with anything at contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at UMPodcastDV. That's UMPodcastDV. Till next time, this is Desiree Valto, the only Desiree Valto on the planet. For Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm out. <laughs>